Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, Episode 78, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. Why the chatty student driving you nuts in class may not be a bad thing, and we'll tell you how a sixth grader helped solve a hit and run. Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, do we teach our students about the migrant caravan? And if so, how do we do it? Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by teacher extraordinaire, Lissa Pruitt. Lissa, how are you doing? I am great. Russ has the day off. How was your Thanksgiving? It was good. Yeah. It was good. Yeah, I just, just finished a small little remodel in my kitchen, and so... Got to test it out. Yes. I've actually got the kitchen back functioning the night before Thanksgiving. <laughs> that sounds chaotic. <laughs> it was chaotic. Yeah, but, but at least you had, you had space now, right? Yes, it's a big difference. Yes. Well, that's good. Good to hear. Were you excited to get back into school this week? I was. I actually put a post on Facebook Sunday night that said, I can't wait to see all of my students and my coworkers because I missed them. You were just saying them. that though, right? No, I really, <laughs> I really miss them. Like I, when you're not there, you miss, you miss the, the laughs that you have with the other teachers and yeah, then the you camaraderie. miss. Yeah. It's funny how even the students that, you know, maybe test your patience, it's like you see them coming and you have this warm feeling in your heart because you've had distance, you know, that so, it's a needed distance. And then now you get to start back. Has that worn off yet? No, I mean, like, that's what I'm saying is like, I feel like every class I've had this week, everything's been great. Like, Excellent. we're all well, fresh good start. To hear. I'm not trying, I'm not trying to make you negative. I'm, just, I'm not, you know, you're not winning. You're, yeah, no, you're winning, you're winning. Let's go ahead and jump into the uh, teacher's lounge. What do you know? Well, speaking of students that test your patience, new research says that some of the most chatty, I guess, or off task students in your class may be the most successful in tomorrow's world. Because it's such a, a world of marketing yourself? Is that what you're trying to say? Or? Well, no. It, 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 it truly talks about the chatty Cathy's in your class that never stop talking and they're so social and they just seem to kind of not care about that. Or you, as a teacher, you feel like they don't care. They're not listening and they're not invested. But they say that the way technology is these days and the way kids are less and less social and then they have less in the interpersonal department right. as far as skills and so they're going to those that are chatty and are social are going to be the leaders of tomorrow so it's, should we foster that chattiness well, or yes it did you know it did say to go ahead and try to embrace it a little bit and channel it into a positive direction and and also let the the chatty child know that they are a leader in their class and that they have that responsibility and um, but it also talks a lot in the article about how to make sure that you're fostering social and interpersonal skills among the other students that are not naturally chatty, naturally outgoing social children. So how stressful is that chatty kid for a teacher in the class? It, it, I mean, it can be, yeah, it, it, it gets old real fast. My son, my, it, both of my boys are that child. And I uh. taught... 
um, one of my boys, and he really was probably one of the most least my least favorite student I've ever taught. And I, I mean, I, and I adore him, but it was every day. I was like, I can't stand that kid. Like, because you think he it was constantly, he, he was like testing you though, because you're, you no, were his no, that's, that's what's so frustrating about those children is they're completely unaware of what they're doing to your job and what you're trying to accomplish. And they are jacking it up and they're completely unaware. So when you say to them, they're not talking back to you. They're talking to other people. Right. So then when you're like, hey, hey, Blake, you know, things like, ma'am, like, he, like what, what? Did you need something? Right. Like, I'm all of a sudden interrupting him. You know what I mean? Whew, it's tough. They're tough. But I do think that there's a lot of truth in what they're saying. So we've spoken several times on this podcast about how even the individualized learning programs and curriculum, how they unfortunately can isolate children from their peers because everybody's on their own track and they're just looking at a screen and on their own pace. So I do think there's a lot to be said about trying to build this. So let's talk about some of the things that we can do. Right. And before we get there, just real quick, you said this was a recent study. Let's, let's give this a little credence. Like, where is it from? It's from the World Economic Forum. Okay. Well, that sounds official. (laughs) <laughs> I think right. it's pretty official. Yeah. Right. Okay. Good. I mean, <laughs> I think it's a lot also of people, nothing new. You know, it's well, definitely say, things we know. People might be listening to go, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's good right. to be social and be able to interact when you get older. But this is some data backing it up. Absolutely. Okay. And so they're 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 talking about in classrooms. You need to create situations that allow students to step up as leaders, and this will give other children a chance to mimic the natural leader in the class and that you can even talk to the natural leader in the class and say, you know, I want you to help them along because we're trying to foster those skills. Um, So definitely role playing or, you know, where you have to find, you know, figure out a situation, some kind of, you know, I love those, uh, what are they called? Escape rooms. I took my homeroom class to an escape room. They had to work together to get out of the, yes, to get out of the room. Um, and then it says it's really important to build interdependency, um, making sure that kids have to work together. That if you I used know, to hate group work. Everybody they're... hates group work. College students hate right. group work. And But if you, as a teacher, do group work correctly, then they're not going to hate it. If, you're, if you, if you yeah. say, hey, guys, we're going to work in groups, and then you go sit at your you know, desk and you get on the Cyber Monday deals, then everybody's going to hate group work because it's one person doing yeah, the work. That's, and that's what it really comes down to. Or you like don't like the way somebody does what you would have done. Like, you know what I mean? And well, that's, now, I Nick, just, no, that's no, no. Life, right? That's part of it. You have yeah. to be willing to accept other people's yeah. ideas and their interpretation of the goal. And so right. it makes you Their easier. interpretation's lazy. Well, yeah. it makes you easier to work with in the future in right. your workplace if you're open to the that the others do things in a different way than you do things. All right. So I work on that, I guess. <laughs> guess I missed that lesson. So it's not just about having the best project or doing all the work. It's about accepting that everybody does their own work in their own way. And that's going to make you a leader in tomorrow's world because you're going to be working with other people. Got it. <laughs> all right. What else you know in there? Is there another? And then um, it says to celebrate the differences within your class. So right. um, allow children to share stories that are truly specific to their background, even if it's a cultural difference or a racial mm-hmm. difference. If they are allowed to share stories, they can open others' minds to something that they were not aware of oh, wow. to a totally, you know, and so then that that 
again, helps everybody be more accepting of others, work well with others. If you can kind of see things from their point of view or walk a little bit in their shoes. And that's also the time to highlight the, the natural leaders and say, yes, you're always talking, but you have a great responsibility with this outgoing personality that you have. That's probably going to pair real well with our bright idea for this episode. Okay, what is well, it? Well, wait, 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 we got to wait till we get there, but you'll you'll see. You'll see what I'm talking about. Let's go ahead and switch gears a little bit, though. Um, have you ever been involved in a hit and run? I've seen one, but you've never like had somebody hit your car in a parking lot no. and it like you come back and it's damaged and there's no one around. No. So apparently, this happened. There was a school bus that hit a vehicle as it was pulling off, and there was a sixth grader who had just been dropped off at the bus stop in the neighborhood and he saw the whole thing happen. So if you're in sixth grade, you're by yourself, what would you do? I, I don't think I would have done anything as a sixth grader. I would have told my parents when they got home, but as a sixth grader, I think I would have been like, oh, he just hit them. Yeah, exactly. And you just kind of move on with your life. Well, the sixth grader had the the mindset to write a note to the person and basically oh. like... Oh. <laughs> Throw their bus driver under the bus, but but I mean it's probably the right thing to do because the bus driver shouldn't have driven off. You said under the. Bus. I know, I know. It was like the first time I've ever used that expression. It actually made sense. Um, <laughs> but in this case, so he writes this note, or and I don't know if it's he or she, but the, the student writes this note and says, "If you're wondering what happened to your car, oh bus four four nine hit your car. It stops here every day to drop me off." And like the the penmanship on this note is. Perfect. Adorable. Like, yeah, I'm yeah. Sure. It really is cute. Oh my goodness. And then um, it says drops me off every day at five o'clock. And then it says, What happened? Question mark. And then it goes into like a detailed description of what exactly happened as it was like pulling away and it rubs the vehicle. And then the student drew a bus with like oh, kids on no. it. <laughs> yeah. And it left it on the car. And the and the cutest thing is they signed it. They didn't sign their name, it just said a sixth grader at Houghton Academy. Oh. So it uh, turns out the guy who had his vehicle hit, he takes a picture of the note. He takes a picture of his car and he's like, you know, shout out to the sixth grader that, you know. <laughs> for being honest. Yeah, for, for telling me what happened. He says, now you saved me a few thousand dollars. And that tweet went viral. Like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of times people have like retweeted this thing because everyone's so proud of this sixth grader. So he calls the school district. The school district um, ends up owning up to it, and they were very responsive and, you know, uh, fixed all that. I think the bus driver actually did get fired. Um, Yeah, I know. That's kind of a shame, but I guess maybe they denied it at first. Who knows? Who knows exactly how how that played out from an HR perspective? Um, But uh, one of the teachers in the school recognized this perfect penmanship, and they're apparently going to be doing some sort of, like, meet-up with the guy who had his vehicle damaged. And he was, like, a young guy. He was, like, 20-something years old, you know, <laughs> and, and the student. So he's going to come and thank the student and stuff. So, yeah, I kind of thought it was a, a, a feel-good story to a degree, you know? I mean, you feel bad for the bus driver, but at the same time, it's the right thing to do. Well, especially when you have all those children watching, you can't be like, hey, nobody say anything. Like, right. That's not the, right. the time to do and, that. And in a bus driver's defense too, and I'm sure this was investigated, it's possible. Those are big buses that you like rub something on a vehicle and you didn't realize you didn't it. Realize. It just kind of felt like a little bump or something, you know. So who knows exactly how that played out. But I will link this tweet uh, to our website. Yeah, I want to see this Yeah, classdismisspodcast.com and I'll just embed the tweet there. So anyone who wants to take a look at the letter can uh, grab that. It's really cute. All right. So I was teasing the uh, the bright idea. 
And you were just talking about like having that diverse perspective. We have Jennifer Rich on the show, who's a professor, and she teaches um, across the College of Education, but specifically, she has a specialty and focused on a Holocaust and genocide education. Yeah. And she's going to talk to us about the migrant caravans and should we be teaching our students about the migrant caravans? It's a very you know topical thing to, that's going on. You see it in the news almost every day right now, and we've right. seen it a lot in the past few weeks. And if we should, what age group should we be talking to students about it? And then how do we talk to students right. about it, which that's is the hardest part. That's what I want to hear. Right. How right. do you do it? Right. Yeah. yeah. I think most teachers would say, you know, yeah, we should talk about that, but how, how do you how? broach it? I don't it? want to do it the wrong way. Right? Yeah. I don't want to do it the wrong way. I don't want a student going home and, and you know, maybe getting something I said right. yeah, that it wasn't correct. So this is her specialty, and I'm really excited to have her on the show. So stay tuned. Yeah. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is a professor at Rowan University's College of Education, and she's the co-director of the Rowan Center of Holocaust and Genocide Studies. Jennifer Rich is also a former elementary school teacher and the mother of young children, and she's here to talk to us about when and how we should talk about difficult and politicized topics, specifically today, we're focusing on the migrant care fan, which has been a hot topic in the headlines recently. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I recently read an opinion piece in a Heckinger report where I think you're a regular contributor, and you published it about uh, encouraging people to have this discussion about the migrant caravan. What inspired you to write this? I was inspired to write this because all of a sudden the the caravan was was out of the news and then it was back in the news. And... I was talking to my own students who are pre-service teachers, some of them who are out in the field, who are in classrooms doing field placements, and they were concerned that they were going to be back in classrooms after the Thanksgiving break, and they were going to get hard questions from students that they work with across all levels, uh, the K-12 spectrum, and they really didn't know how to answer them. So I was getting questions over the Thanksgiving break as we were we were all hearing more in the news about the caravan. And they they wanted to know what what do I do? How do I answer these questions? Do I answer these questions? And that's really what prompted me to to think about writing this piece. Specifically in the opinion piece that you wrote, you talk about your experience, and, and we'll dive into this eventually, but you talk about your experience of having this conversation in a university setting. Um, but what's the youngest age educators should be engaging in this conversation with students, in your opinion? I think a cu- I think it depends on a couple of things. So I talk to uh, students, and by students I mean my own my own university students and other teachers about having the conversation, having any hard conversations um, by a, a couple of metrics. So those would be proximity. So how close are you to to whatever it is that that you're talking about? What sort of personal connection do students in your classroom have? How scary is it? Right. Um, what are you talking about? And then if you decide to talk about this, how can you empower students to get involved? So certainly, if you live in a border state, you're going to need to talk about the migrant caravan because it impacts your community differently. If you have a student who feels in some way that they're personally connected to the migrant caravan, if they have a family member that's traveling up through through who's sitting in Mexico right now as part of the caravan, who perhaps uh, is a, an immigrant who came here uh, 
through through um, migration who who is here um, and their own status or their parents' uh, immigration status is uncertain, they might bring this up in class. If you have students who are really polarized on this subject, they might bring it up in class. This is a subject that even young children might be seeing on the news and hearing their parents talk about. And so I think that teachers across the the K-12 spectrum need to be prepared. And we want kids to know that in schools, they're safe, they're safe, um, their families are safe, and they don't need to worry about um, things like their own, like their own immigration status. You um, actually went into in your article, um, your experience of, of having this discussion with with I guess it was an older audience, from what I understand, mm-hmm. it, it was in a university mm-hmm. setting. Um, and you talked about how it was people from different backgrounds, and you, and you started this conversation, and, and you really didn't know everyone's background that was even in the room. And, and I guess to summarize it, you wrote, in the end, it was demoralizing, depressing, enormously complicated, and the best thing I've ever participated in this year. Why did you say that? It was a really hard conversation. Um, in fairness, I expected it to go maybe easier than it did. I facilitate lots of conversations like this and maybe was a little bit uh, overconfident in in my ability to facilitate the conversation. And I opened up the conversation just sort of asking students what they what they knew, how they were feeling, and the conversation went off the rails really, really quickly. And we were talking not only about the migrant caravan, but we were talking about the Pittsburgh shooting and and some of the other events that have taken place in our country recently. And the, the, the room was fairly divided. Um, and in fairness, it was sort of more heavily liberal leaning than conservative leaning. And I didn't know I, I didn't know most of the people in the room and and I felt like it was really important to give everybody a voice and, and actually to give both sides a voice. And so I went sort of back and forth between the more liberal leaning students and the more conservative leaning students. And they really did battle it out sort of point for point. And it felt really hard. And so across campus, there's been this real concerted effort for uh, peace building activities after the Pittsburgh shooting. As we talk about immigration, there's a real effort, as there should be, on uh, creating safe spaces, on, on letting um, college students know that they're safe and, and that our campus is safe. And one of the things that we wanted to make sure we were doing as a center is also letting helping students learn to have really constructive conversations because something that we feel is hard for for kids um, I'm calling my college students kids they know that I do this even though they're mm-hmm. they're young adults or, right. or real adults at this point um, they have a really hard time having constructive conversations with one another and so, they sat, they listened to one another, even when they disagreed, you know, they, they almost, it was almost as if they were using sentence starters, the way we give to really young children. Mm -hmm. I disagree with so-and-so because I hear what so-and-so is saying, but, um, 
and they really fought it out. And it was hard because they didn't agree. And as a, as a teacher and as a parent, I wanted them to. I wanted them to come to some sort of consensus and some sort of place of, of healing and agreement. But they weren't, they weren't able to. But they did stay and they did listen. And I think that they were able to see each other as, as people with fundamental differences. I imagine the conversation with this group of students would be similar to having it with, say, high schoolers, you know, maybe uh, especially seniors, or, you know, maybe in a government class. So you mm-hmm. wrote about five different takeaways that you got from your experience. Um, and, and I should also note that this is somewhat of a specialty for your for you. I mean, you specialize in having these tough discussions. Um, but mm-hmm. I'm going to go ahead and kind of list these. And if you could elaborate, you say one, admit mistakes. Yep. I made a lot of mistakes in that conversation. I was tired. It had been a long day. I had sort of set this rule at the beginning that I, you know, the faculty members who were there were not going to get involved, that I was really going to do the facilitate, handle the facilitation for the conversation. Um, and, and, and that was a mistake. It, it got to the point that um, I needed help that I couldn't ask for. I didn't quite know how. And I needed to backtrack at, at a certain point. And I, I said all of that. I sort of said a couple of times in the conversation, um, you know, I, I need to I need to slow down. I need to add something in. You know, at the beginning of this conversation, I said X, but what I really need is Y. And admitting those mistakes allowed for some honesty in the conversation. And I think the students really appreciated because it allowed them to also admit mistakes. It was sort of humbling for me, but it also allowed them to do the same thing, which was helpful. You say, remember the rule of good intentions. What do you mean by that? This is this one's a little tricky. So it's not to say that when students said things that were offensive, we didn't call them on it because they definitely said things that were offensive, but we set the ground rules. We're all going to say things that are going to offend other people, but let's Let's try to assume that nobody is doing this intentionally. We're going to assume that everybody is speaking from their own own lived experience. We're going to assume that people are are entering into this conversation from a place of wanting to come to consensus, and people are not trying to offend, aggrieve, hurt people who feel differently from than they do. You talk about entering the conversation from a place of curiosity. So the the most casual way way to say this these days would be, um, you know, uh, no uh, mansplaining, woman-splaining, et cetera, allowed. And that's sort of how I explain this to my students, and they they get it, and they sort of uh, laugh when I when I say this to them. Um, don't tell somebody what their own lived experience is. Right. Ask. So rather than my saying to a young man sitting across the table, you know, as a man, I know that you experience, ask them, what is it like to walk through the world in in your body? Don't have a firm end goal. So what I really wanted at the end of this conversation was for us to all agree and everyone to leave feeling better. That's optimistic, right? It's optimistic and it was really unrealistic. And had I kept had I kept to that firm goal, the conversation wouldn't have been able to evolve organically. 
it wouldn't have been as productive. And I think that was a lesson that I learned as I was going through this conversation that felt important for me to really put down on, on paper uh, for, for this op-ed that I was, uh, that I was writing. It was a really good reminder for myself, allow things to evolve and come to the place that they need to. I wanted us to come to a place of consensus, but we just weren't ready. And the last one, you say, allow everyone to have a voice, even when you disagree. And do you mean that from a teacher's perspective or from an individual perspective? Both. Yeah. Um, in this instance, everybody, I, I worked really hard to give everybody a perspective, uh, give everyone space, even when I, as the facilitator, felt um, taken aback by some of the things that I was hearing. Mm-hmm. And... I think that I think that's really important. It it does give everybody a sense that their voice matters and their perspective matters. I think as participants, part- being a part of the conversation afterwards, some of them came up to me after and said, "You know, why did you let that person go on for so long?" Or it's really interesting that you let that person go on for so long, and I'm glad you did. Or I wish you hadn't. Um, and I was able to explain to them that the reason I did in so many instances was because it, it feels really important to allow everybody a space so that we all are able to listen to one another. And both liberal and conservative students felt that I had sort of let the other side go on a little bit too long in, in, in certain places. Um, but it had to do with giving each side equal space, equal footing, um, equity in the conversation. I'm excited to have you on the show to talk about this because your background is in that university system where where speech and, and these type of conversations are encouraged uh, and expected. But in the K through 12 system, you might have some other restraints. You might have to worry about, you know, a parent calling and complaining and then you're hearing from next thing you know, your school superintendent or your principal because mm-hmm. of because of a conversation you have. And I'm sure that's the concern that a lot of K through 12 teachers have about having conversations about these wedge issues, but important issues to talk about. So, so what's your advice in the K through 12 system? I mean, how, how much do you dive into this? Yeah, it's the thing that I hear over and over again from, from K 12 teachers and my student teachers also that they want to be able to talk about this. And at the same time, they're so afraid to do it. And the thing that I, I tell them and that I say in response to this question is, I really believe that there's a way to talk about these issues without at all pushing your own politics. And I think that's where we have to be really careful as teachers. Uh, I think that we can open the conversation and allow students to lead the conversation without our getting involved and saying, well, you know, to, to a student as soon as they talk, you know, we, I don't think we need to shut them down, and I don't think we need to either um, tell them that they're right or wrong. I think we can allow students to think about these things critically, engage them. I think saying things that are really open-ended, say more about that. Tell me where you heard it. What are the di- what what in that sentence are facts and what are opinions? I think students have a really hard time right now telling the difference between a fact and an opinion in a statement. I think those things are really important to help our kids understand. And I think it's really easy to help parents. Uh, Scary for K-12 teachers. Um, And I say this as the perspective of a a 
from the perspective of, of both a, a former New York City public school teacher and as, as the parent of, of children who are in a, a public school system. So I'm sensitive to what it, what it means on, on both sides of that. Um, but I think it's, it's reasonable to talk to kids about these issues based on the facts as opposed to how we feel about them. Let's assume, or let's do a little example. Let's say that um, we are a teacher in a border state, and yep. you, you probably know that you have a student or several students maybe in your class that may have immigrated here. They may have a story to tell, but how mm-hmm. how should a teacher approach that? We, we don't certainly want to single somebody out, but then again, they may have a, a unique perspective. What, what's your suggestion there? So uh, much like uh, when, you know, when I'm teaching a class and I have a, a handful of students, perhaps who are um, minority students in a classroom, and uh, you know, we we never want to make any students feel singled out, like they're speaking for the entirety of a, a single group, right? Right. Um, when we're talking about that, it's it's simply an invitation. You know, do, does anybody have, you know, does anybody in this room have something that they want to add or share? I think that students either will or won't take that invitation. I think another really good way for students to to accept an invitation like that is in writing. Um, you know, depending, uh, you know, more likely if we're talking about a middle school setting, teachers in the humanities will be talking about these as opposed to teachers in a, a STEM subject. Um, you know, so if you know the the following day, perhaps you're going to be talking about the the crisis at the border to ask students to journal about it overnight and talk about any personal connections they might have or questions that they have and turn it in is a really good way for you as a teacher to get a sense of who has connections, who is feeling, uh, who's feeling what way about the crisis at the border. Um, I think that's a really easy way to do it privately and then have a sort of a quiet word with certain kids and say, I see that you have X connection with this. Is this something you want to share? Do you want me to steer the connection, the, the conversation away from you? gives teachers a, a really good way to, to be able to do that quietly um, and also gives kids an outlet to, to talk about it with their teachers privately. I think that's one way to do it. It also gives teachers um, insight into kids who might be feeling sort of hostile to the situation um, so they know what they're getting into ahead of time. Do you feel like educators in the K-12 system are prepared to have, not specific to the migrant caravan issue, but just are they prepared to have these tough discussions like that or, say, Charlottesville or, or a school shooting the next day? Is anyone talking to an incoming teacher about what to do in those situations, or, or do you find that they're going online and looking for resources? In my experience, incoming teachers are exceptionally nervous about this. I think that teacher prep programs do a great job doing what they've always done, right? So we sort of uh, teacher prep programs, we um, do a really good job preparing uh, future teachers to think about how to teach, you know, math and social studies and science and, and reading and writing. And, you know, we're even, we even sort of think about how to address some social emotional issues, bullying, et cetera. My argument is that we need to think a little bit differently 
about how to help our future teachers tackle some of the more heated political topics that are happening uh, on the, you know, sort of quote unquote real world Mm -hmm. um, that certainly are trickling down into our schools. So school shootings, uh, immigration, uh, sexual assault, all of these things that we see debated on uh, national news in, you know, on the, on the Senate floor, all of these things are really have profound impacts on the kids sitting in all of our classrooms. And I think that part of what we need to do to prepare teachers well, that there needs to be a better intersection between uh, teacher education and political education. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if that's quite the right the right language, but there needs to be a better interest, not the politics of education, but sort of politics and education. Your specialty, I think, if I if I understand right, is on educating educators about how to educate about the Holocaust. Am I right about that? The, hol- the Holocaust, um, yes, and also all of these things that we're talking about. So the Holocaust and other hard, hard histories, broadly, broadly couched. And so what's, if there was one thing that you could, I know we can't go into a whole course, but if there's one thing that you could tell, you know, a a group of K through 12 teachers listening, when you're, you're approaching difficult subjects like that, you know, what's kind of the posture that you encourage teachers to have going into it? I would say two, I would say two things. Oh, please, Um, please do. One is, one is, um, really general. And that is um, perhaps be a better listener than you are, um, than you are speaker. Kids, kids have lots and lots of questions about the Holocaust, as well as other hard and messy histories. They make lots of connections, some of which are really interesting and relevant, and some of which are kind of bananas. And unteaching them some of the things that they know is just as important as helping them make new new connections and so i think it's so important for for all of us k12 and also at the university level to be really careful in listening to to kids um and being slow and steady when we teach them the facts about the Holocaust and other hard histories. Um, the thing that I hear from my college students as we as we embark on any study of the Holocaust is, I all I learned over and over again were were the were the gruesome things, and they talk about particular images that they saw, but they're missing some really basic facts. Um, I did a survey yesterday actually with my students, um, really basic facts about the Holocaust, and and they didn't know how many how many victims there were, um, either answering in the thousands or too many. Um, they didn't know the century that the Holocaust took place. Wow. So they're sort of overwhelmed with gruesome details, but missing sort of really, really basic facts. Um, and the other thing I would say right now and in, in this particular moment in history is to be really careful to avoid comparisons. My students um, want to make comparisons all the time. And I'm constantly walking them back from doing that. And, and that feels really dangerous to me. 
Yeah, that that's actually really good advice. Well, well, Jennifer, uh, Rich, we uh, really appreciate you taking the time to talk about what's what's a difficult subject. And, and I appreciate all the uh, pointers and takeaways from your experiences. Um, and I think our listeners will as well. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Are, are you ready for our pop quiz? I think so. Okay. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Reading. Why's that? Yeah. You could live a million lives if you read a million books. There you go. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? More history. What does every child deserve? An adult who loves them. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Time. Time to do things well. What's the best gift to give an educator? (sighs) Unlimited coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Which teacher changed your life? Oh my gosh. Um, My mentor in my graduate program at Bank Street College of Education, uh, Peggy McNamara. She taught me not only to be a better teacher, but to be a better person. And last question, pen or pencil? Oh my gosh, a pencil, then you can erase. (laughs) All right, Jennifer. Again, uh, we appreciate you taking the time to chat. If somebody wants to keep up with you, is there a place you like to hang out at, exchange information with folks? Do you go on Twitter or do you have a website or anything? I am on Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is uh, jdrich1009. All right. Again, Jennifer, we appreciate you taking the time and uh, keep in touch. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. We want to hear from you, so if you want to send us an idea or a comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So if you like what you heard today, please be sure and hit that subscribe button, and we'd also love it if you'd leave us a five-star review. Don't forget you can connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash classdismissedpodcast or on Twitter to search for us by typing in Class Dismiss. On behalf of Russ with School Status and Lissa representing all the teachers out there, I'm Nick Ward. Go and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.